Well, if you'd like to turn with me to page 1073 in your Bibles, that's Romans 10, verses 9 to 13. So page 1073. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord for, of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I love a party. I love being invited to parties. I love going to parties. Anybody else in the room love a party? Great. Excellent. So most of us do. Now, some of you in the room who maybe are slightly more introverted might be thinking, "Uh, actually, not so much. But I would want to suggest that you might uh, be grateful of an invite, because being invited makes us feel seen and valued. It says that we're wanted. The fact that you were invited to the party implicitly means that there is a celebration of your friendship or relationship with the host. So for those of you that maybe didn't particularly like the party idea, how about a wedding, a wedding party? See, weddings are great. You've got the music, the food, the wine, the dancing, getting all dressed up, the celebration of a marriage, the people, the guests. Actually, one of my favorite things about a wedding is the diversity of the guests. You've got all the different ages. You've got grandpas and grannies, often my favorite, particularly the slightly cantankerous ones. Um, You've got nieces and nephews running around as flower girls and page boys, to current friends of the bride and groom, to old school friends, to friends of um, the, the parents of the bride and groom, work colleagues, friends from church, friends from a sports team, et cetera, et cetera. Might be getting the gist. I love a wedding. I love it because everyone is invited. And similarly, in this passage, I love how Paul makes it abundantly clear that absolutely everyone is invited. It's for everyone. Let's look at verses 11 to 13. If we can on the screen. Oh, actually, you've got it in your Bible, so we'll just look there. Um, Anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame, for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's so clear. No matter who you are, how old you are, where you're from, what your background is, this is for you. For some reason, I think we tend to compare, to rank, and maybe disqualify ourselves. I know that sometimes I'm tempted to do that. I loved when Joy preached a few weeks ago. She shared with us some of the characteristics of some of the people in the Bible, which one might be tempted to think would disqualify them. But it didn't. Noah was a drunk, Rahab a prostitute, Jacob was a liar, Joseph was abused, Martha worried about everything, Moses had a stutter, Zacchaeus a tax collector, a thief, Thomas doubted, Jonah was judgmental and a disobedient. Gideon was afraid, Leah was ugly, David had Bathsheba's husband murdered after having an affair with her, Elijah was suicidal, Samson a womanizer, Isaiah preached naked, so glad I didn't take inspiration from him this evening, Uh, the disciples fell asleep, I've definitely done that, Uh, fell asleep whilst praying, I've definitely done that, 
I could go on. But the point is, whatever we might be tempted to think disqualifies us, whatever it is, it just doesn't. This message is for all of us. And that's my first and very simple, yet strangely hard to grasp and easy to forget point tonight. This message is for all. And particularly tonight, I think there may be someone or some people in the room who are thinking, do you know what, I've been a Christian for years. I know all this faith toolkit stuff. And I think God really wants to speak to you tonight because we are all freshly invited in tonight. So hopefully you're all on board with the idea that you're invited. But what are you actually invited to? Well, God's heavenly party, of course. I love a party. Tim, over the past two weeks, has wonderfully explained God inviting us and making a way for us to be in relationship with him. That's what we're invited into. From the moment when Adam and Eve hid from their shame of eating the fruit and God's first question being to them, where are you? through to our justification and salvation through the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. And our passage tonight talks us through the A, B, C, and D, I would argue, of this incredible invitation. So hopefully we've all got the A. We're all invited. Now on to the B. Verse 10 says, For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. If we believe in our hearts that God raised Jesus from the dead, then we are justified, just if I had never sinned. Tim explained incredibly last Sunday about justification, and if you weren't here, I'd really recommend you go back and listen to it on our YouTube channel. He said that justification is God saying, come, I desire your presence. There's that invitation. It's the free granting to us of the undeserved status of being right with God. You see, the Jews hadn't understood this, and sometimes I wonder if, if we misunderstand this or forget it. The Jews hadn't understood justification. And in Paul's exhortation to include everyone, we see in verse 12 him explicitly stating that Jews and Gentiles are alike. He is saying to the Jews, your old status doesn't matter. Now that would have been an unpopular statement amongst the Jews. The Jews had historically um, had a status of being God's chosen one, set apart but the Gentiles, just another term for those not Jewish, were therefore not chosen. They would have been excluded and uninvited. But Paul is saying, no, no, they're all invited. You're all invited. And actually, even more than that, he's also pointing out that the Jews had misunderstood the purpose of the law of Moses, which they would have lived by meticulously, or at least tried to. So this was a huge claim. The Jews believed that in order to be justified, saved, and to receive God's blessings, they had to obey the law and in the meantime wait for the Messiah to come and save them. The Old Testament understanding was that God would act like he did at the Exodus and redeem his people. Paul is trying to tell them that this is not the way. The law has been fulfilled in Jesus. Everything that they had been waiting for was brought together in Jesus. And Paul is clever here because in verse 13 of our passage tonight, he uses a direct quote from the Old Testament prophet Joel. Joel 2 verse 32, which as learned Jews they would have recognized, where the word Lord means Yahweh, 
therefore aligning Jesus and God, God as they understood him from the Old Testament, the Torah. Paul even quotes from Moses' final sermon in Deuteronomy 30 in the verses just before our passage tonight to help make his point. Deuteronomy 30, verse 11 to 14, and then in Romans 10, 5 to 8, he talks about the righteousness, the justification, and ultimately salvation not being far away. He quotes, the word is near you. And he's saying that that's Jesus. It's always been Jesus. So to the Jews and early Christians then, and to us now, to all, justification is purely through believing that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And I've got to be honest with you, I haven't always found this easy. I wonder if I was slightly like the Jews. See, I was brought up in a Christian home and so went to church and Sunday school, and I'd known the gospel all my life. I believed in God. I had a reverence of God. I believed my wonderful parents when they told me that God raised Jesus from the dead to save me. So I was grateful to God and my parents for sharing this with me, And I knew that I therefore ought to obey the rules and the law. And I think I thought or hoped that that would be enough. But I think I kept this real belief that Jesus was the Messiah kind of over here somewhere, disconnected from my heart. I actually don't know why, but maybe it was because I didn't really understand how it was possible. Or maybe by keeping it slightly disconnected, so divine and spiritual, as opposed to being real and raw truth, it made it somehow easier. Or maybe I knew that if I really truly believed in my heart that Jesus was crucified and then resurrected for me, it would mean I would have to live differently. And that would be hard. But what changed in me was two, well, actually lots, but two specific, beautiful Holy Spirit moments. First at New Wine uh, Christian Summer Conference, where I'd been kind of going through the motions, singing all the songs, because, you know, I knew how to do church, so I sort of, you know, went with it. And the Holy Spirit just completely convicted me. I was singing words that I didn't mean, and I definitely wasn't living them. And the second was a few years ago, when I listened to a preach, and the preacher, very matter-of-factly, as if it was completely normal and obvious and simple, said that the answer to this particular thing was to have Jesus as your best friend. And if I'm honest, I've been quite honest, I'm sharing lots of my uh, terrible things, but I got a bit cross, because at that stage, I didn't have a clue what that meant. What earth does it mean to have Jesus as your best friend? It's not possible, he's dead. Oh no, wait, he's alive. Hang on, but he's in heaven. I can't see him, I can't hear him, or or can I? I didn't know how this friendship was possible. But I wanted to find out. I wanted to find out if it was possible. And so I spoke with some friends and I prayed about it and then chose to believe that it was. And it's been a journey ever since. Likewise, I chose to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, my Savior. It had been somewhere over here, and then it became a belief in my heart. A belief that I choose every day, even when I'm not really feeling it. And I have changed. My actions have changed. My relationship with Jesus has changed. 
I'll talk a little bit more about that in a bit. So back to verse 10. It says, For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. And. What a small word. Like so many things in the Christian walk, there's a both and. We believe, that's our B, and we also have to profess our faith. To declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, Paul writes in verse 9, then we are saved. We need to believe and confess that Jesus is Lord. And this is our C, confess. So some translations say profess, some say confess, and C kind of worked with the ABC, so we went with confess. Um, so there it is. There's our ABC to justification and salvation, to the invitation to this heavenly party. A, all, B, believe, C, confess. Now, you might be asking, why do we need to believe and confess? Why isn't it enough just to believe in our hearts? Well, let's remind ourselves of the context of this passage. As I've already said, whilst the message is absolutely saying that justification and salvation through Jesus Christ is for everyone, Paul is actually writing this particular letter to the Jews and the early Christians living in Rome in around AD 57, so about 24 years after Jesus was crucified. And where before the Jews, as God's chosen people, had outward signs of circumcision, the observance of festivals, Sabbaths, and food laws to set them apart, to show their status, Paul is now saying, that's not the way anymore. Your sign now is confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. Verse 9, declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Paul uses the Greek word kurios for Lord. I mean, it's pretty universally used in the New Testament, but it's the standard Greek translation of the Old Testament word Yahweh. Again, he's emphasizing that Jesus is God. And the English translation of kurios is master. So by confessing and declaring that Jesus is Lord is outwardly declaring that Jesus is master. And being under Roman rule, as they were at that point, they were expected to bow to Caesar as their god, their master, almost like a deity. And if they didn't, they would likely have been put to death. For these Jews and the early Christians, confessing and declaring Jesus as Lord and Master is actually immensely significant because it dethrones Caesar. And dethroning Caesar states that God has come good on his promise to bring Israel out from under foreign rule. So confessing that Jesus is Lord is significant on so many levels. It's an outward sign of both their new identity, their, their new justified status in Christ, and of their recognition of the new world order. See, Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension was the inauguration of the new kingdom. There's no going back. They were in the new world order now. And as are we. Whilst we might not live in an occupied state or under military rule like Rome was then, we do live in a post-Christian culture where society at large doesn't seem to care much for the Christian viewpoint and reverence of God. And where the idea of God being our master 
is almost an insult to our freedom. Oh, the irony. There is power in confessing that Jesus is Lord. It's an outward sign of our identity, our heart's belief. It shows that we're unashamed of the gospel. It sets us apart. It shows we are confident to take risks because we are secure in our justification, salvation, and inheritance as co-heirs with Christ, as Paul puts it earlier in Romans 8. It's a sign that our security and hope is not in any earthly status. It's in who we are in Christ. As some might put it, we are dying to self. Not actually dying, but although for the early Christians, that would have been a very real risk. Many were carted off to the games where they would die just because they would confess that Jesus was Lord and Master, not Caesar. And also, a slight little side note, but wonderfully, by, by openly confessing that Jesus is our Lord and Master and that our salvation is not earned by upholding the law or by works, it reinforces to all that Christianity is not some kind of elite religion where only some have the ability or finances or background or education to sort of make it. It is a freely given invitation to be accepted by and brought into a relationship with God the Father through Jesus by his Holy Spirit. Praise God. So is your outward sign visible to all you interact with? Is the fact that your security and hope is in Jesus Christ alone clear for all to see? Because the thing is, We live out this glorious partnership with our Creator as sons and daughters day by day. It's not a one-off confession and then we're done. We live as saved people, alive in Christ, but as as 1 John 1, 8 says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. And Paul says in Romans 3, we have all fallen short of the glory of God and we will continue to do so. So we're all under the power of sin. So now this is where my D comes in. We need to be determined to keep confessing our faith and submitting to Christ as Lord, keeping our sign visible, regularly, confidently, and boldly confessing our faith in Jesus Christ. It's an active decision. It doesn't just happen. You know, I started off tonight, tonight, talking about parties and weddings. You don't accept an invitation to a party, turn up and then not get involved, or sit in the corner and not chat to anyone. Have you ever been to a wedding and refused to eat the dinner or not toast the bride and groom? Of course not. When we were at Connor and Freya's wedding recently, um, Tim said, will you, the families and friends of Connor and Freya, support and uphold them in their marriage now and in the years to come? Every single one of us said, we will. Well, at least I'm pretty sure nobody in the room did it, but we participate. Even if we don't find it easy, we make the effort. Equally, you don't go to a party and then never see the host again or never see the wedding couple again after their wedding party, unless something went really wrong. But you keep responding to being in relationship with those people, and it's the same with God. Thanks to Jesus dying on the cross for us, we can come to the Father through Jesus by the Holy Spirit. It's an active relationship, one that we need to continually say yes to. This week as a staff team, 
we did our emergency at work first aid course. It was great fun watching Tim doing CPR. It was hilarious. Um, but it was really great. Um, and at times, it felt like a little bit like, you know, in Sunday school when the right answer is always Jesus. Well, the right answer was always ABC. So it's perfect for my preach tonight. And I don't know if any of you have done your first aid training recently. I know we have a few doctors in the room, so please don't heckle me if I got it wrong. If I get it wrong, um, I did pass, honestly. Uh, But the acronym that we had to remember was the Doctor's ABC. So Doctor's ABC, danger, response, shout for help, airways, breathing, circulation. And that ABC is known as the primary survey because it's the foundation of life. If you don't have your ABC, you don't have your airways, breathing, circulation, you're dead or you're going to be dead very soon. But if you do, you're alive and kicking. And like the first aid, like the first aid ABC, this is true of our ABC tonight. All, everyone, will be alive into eternity with our Father in heaven if we believe and confess. A, all, B, believe, C, confess. But in our first aid course, it didn't just stop at the primary survey. We also learned about the secondary survey. Now, the purpose of the secondary survey is to perform a more detailed and thorough examination to identify illnesses and injuries which might be affecting the patient's ABC, so the patient's foundation of life. So, for example, the patient might have a break or a fracture that's causing them to to bleed, which in turn would cause the patient's circulation to deteriorate. So that would need to be identified and sorted and then monitored in the future. I think you can see where I'm going with this. We have accepted the invitation. And if you haven't, but would like to, we would love to chat and pray with you after the service. But if you have, we have responded to God's call of where are you? We've RSVP'd saying we're here, we're in. We've said yes, we believe in our hearts that Jesus is Lord and we confess it. We are justified and saved. We have eternal life with God. We've done the ABC, like the first aid training. We're alive. And, see there it is again, that and. We are determined to submit to Christ as Lord, continually dethroning our Caesar. It's our D. When we submit to Christ, we give our lives to his authority and control. We humbly commit to being obedient to his will. Jesus is our master, not Caesar or anyone or anything else for that matter. Has Jesus got authority and control in your life? Are you praying and listening to him regularly, reading your Bible regularly? Are you inviting Jesus into every situation? I genuinely now try to invite Jesus into everything. My wonderful friend, Lawsy, many of you know, has taught me this. And it's actually really simple. But you have to be determined to do it. You have to be determined to remember. But but the great thing is, like most things, the, the more you do it, the more it becomes a natural way. I'll be in the conversation with someone and I'll just ask, ask Jesus, what does this person need to hear right now? I'll be walking along the street and I'll be chatting away in my head to Jesus. Sometimes I invite him into the most mundane things. 
but by inviting him in, I'm giving him the opportunity to speak into my life, and I'm keeping him as Lord and as Master. I believe tonight that God is calling us into a fresh boldness in our submission to him. A boldness to confess again and again, clearly and unashamedly, that Jesus is our Lord and Master, and to share that with others in a real and honest way, not as some badge of honor, like we've got it all sorted, because quite frankly, we haven't, but as a humble declaration of the beautiful invitation to the heavenly party. I'd love to encourage us all to remember our justified status and security in him and step out in boldness. I'll let you into a little secret, although actually some of you in the room probably know this, but a long time ago I had a dream. And I had a dream, a second dream a couple of years ago that I believe were from God. In these dreams, I had a home that I opened up to have vulnerable people come and live with me. And since then, I've been praying for this home. But of course, as you'll know, to have a home around here requires a sizable amount of money. I don't have that money. But I am currently boldly praying for it. Now, you might think I'm completely crazy, but I have actually been into this house that was in my dream. I've met the owners, and I've actually met the neighbors too. So all of this to say, I'm boldly believing that I might actually get this house. And whilst I'm praying for this complete miracle, at the same time, I'm being completely open-handed with it. As if it's, no, as, as if it's not God's will, it won't happen. And actually, I wouldn't want it to happen if it wasn't God's will. Because the most important thing for me is to live under Jesus as my master. I am determined to keep asking myself whether my heart posture is a one of surrender to his will. Not allowing fear or insecurity or earthly status, pride, shame, or anything else take that throne. Where is your heart posture toward him? Is it one of surrender to his will? Or is there a Caesar on the throne of your life? I'd like to humbly suggest that for all of us at times, speaking to myself here as well, that there is a Caesar that needs dethroning. So this evening, I'd like to invite you to consider what needs to be dethroned in your life to keep Jesus in his rightful place as Lord and Master.